Hi, this is Jim Lobato, and I'm president and founder of a company called Performance Group. You're listening to the podcast version of a program that originally aired on the BizTalk radio show. I started BizTalk so you'd have access to today's leading experts about growing your company and yourself. BizTalk is produced by Performance Group. At Performance Group, we work at the front end of a company's revenue stream. We find the salespeople who generate the revenue, and we provide onboarding programs that get them doing that sooner. Our passion is aligning talent with opportunity. That's why we're known as a Salesforce development company. Enjoy the program. On our program today, we have Lou Adler, noted recruiting industry expert, international speaker, and CEO and founder of the Adler Group, a training and search firm helping companies implement performance-based hiring. Lou is the author of the Amazon Top 10 bestseller, Hire With Your Head, a guide to finding the perfect candidate for any position using Lou's performance-based hiring system. We are fortunate Lou is willing to share his insights from his most recent book, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired, a must-read for anyone involved at any stage of the hiring process. Lou, welcome to the program. Hey, thank you very much, Jim. Delighted to be here. Lou, in your introduction, I mentioned you know performance-based hiring, and it's something your company has innovated. So let's get started today with just a brief description of what performance-based hiring really is. Well, I think at the, the core level, it's the idea that candidates, managers, recruiters emphasize the wrong things when they start meeting people and evaluating people. Most of them emphasize, and it starts out with the individual job description, and they take the assignment, what are you looking for? And you get a list of skills, experience. Uh, industry background, academic background, and none of that predicts on-the-job performance. All it does is filter good people out. What I focus on is rather than asking what are you looking for is what does it take to be very successful in this job. It's about performance. They do things. They build teams. They grow sales. They design circuits. They uh, make quota more quickly. So I want to understand what it takes for this person to be a top performer in the job. And my contention is if I can find someone who is, can prove, can do that work in a similar environment, they will have all the skills and experiences necessary. So the focus is on performance to define the work, performance to accept, uh, to assess the person, and performance to onboard the person. Uh, so the idea is that let's use performance as the fundamental uh, driver for selecting people, assessing people, and promoting people. And that's, that's the definition of why I call it performance-based hiring. Performance drives every step of the way. Lou, what you're saying is so commonsensical, and at the same time, it appears to be counterintuitive to what goes on today. Everybody talks about they want the end result, especially when you're looking at a sales position, and at the same time, they don't do that in the interview. They talk about everything but that. They talk about the person's background, the experience, the skills, and how they handle certain situations. So I'm just kind of curious, where do you believe the disconnect is between what we say we want and what we actually execute on in the interview? Yeah, I think, and that's a real good point. I actually do a lot of training around a concept. I say when you think about the hiring process, there's four big buckets. The having bucket, which is the list of skills, responsibilities, and experiences, which is on a candidate's resume, and that's how we typically write job descriptions. The next bucket is what I call the getting bucket. This is what a candidate gets on day one. They get a title, they get a job, they get a location, they get a compensation package. The next bucket is the doing bucket. It's what they actually do and who they do it with. It's this list of performance objectives of what drives success. 
And then there's what I call the becoming bucket, which is the future, which is if they do it well and with a great company, what can happen to them? Well, most hiring processes are built from a having to getting to doing to becoming. And unfortunately, so many people, good people, are fil- filtered out on the having and getting. Candidates filter themselves out. Jim, what, what is the comp- what's the job pay, not interested? This whole host of things. Even our legal system, even our applicant tracking system, every process is built uh, from this underlying uh, having, getting bucket. I contend you, if you're really in a scarcity situation, if the demand for talent is high, that approach won't work. You've got to emphasize what people do and become, and then some of the having, and I'll actually say the having and the getting is negotiable. If a person can do the work, they have exactly the skills needed. That's what the, the skills don't determine that they're uh, performers. Performance determines the skills you need. That's why somebody who's a high performer tends to have less skills and less experience. That's what makes them. A, that's the definition of a high performer. So if you emphasize the skills and experience, that's not going to predict performance. But if you can guarantee they can do the performance, uh, they have exactly the skills needed. So I emphasize this backwards thinking. It really, it's logical thinking. Let's emphasize what people do and become. Let's negotiate the getting, but let's put that in a parking lot until we think if the doing and becoming makes sense. And I guarantee if they can do the work, they have exactly the skills needed. That just opens up the pool to diverse candidates, military vets, old people, young people. It just changes the whole dynamic. But it is a, it's a rethinking of the process. And let me say, I've been rethinking it for 20 years, and we're starting to get a lot of companies to buy into it. But it's, uh, it's counter and I won't say it's counterintuitive because it's kind of logical, but it's certainly counter to the way business processes for hiring are built. And I believe that at the fundamental level is why we've got ourselves in a problem here. Lou, if we're not hiring against the job description, the other default that hiring managers tend to go into is hiring based on direct industry experience. So where does industry experience factor into your performance-based hiring system as relates to choosing that ideal candidate? Well, let's say this. I don't discount experience, but it's not just years of experience. It's what you've done with that experience or done with those skills. So if, and I don't want to say specific industry. And if you're selling, let's just take a sales representative for a position. If you're selling to big uh, corporations, you're selling a technical product, you're dealing with the buyer who happens to be a very technical buyer, and you're dealing with the executive team who are making sophisticated decisions, well, I would want somebody who's done those kinds of things and had a, a track record of sales doing those kinds of things. If the buyer's a CFO, or this, which is the chief financial officer, or the uh, chief information officer, if you're dealing with that level of person, you can probably deal with that with equally complex issues. I work with the same kind of thing if I'm working in a uh, for an engineer designing a product. It doesn't have to be in the right industry, but the design concept, the design tools, the methodology should certainly be comparable. So it's not the the problem I have is the absolute level of skills as a filter. The fact that the person perform something with that experience and accomplish something, that's what I'm more interested in. I, I, the comment I make in the book is it's what you do with what you have. And if they've done similar things, comparable things, I think they deserve an opportunity. If they haven't done comparable performance, then they probably aren't going to be a good fit. But I try to – I don't want to overstate the years of experience, the actual academic background. I really want to focus on what they've accomplished with the work and is the work comparable to what needs to be done. And Lou, you've mentioned you've been doing this for 20 years. But take us back in time. What was the triggering event or the epiphany you had where you say, you know, we could be doing this better, and you started on this path of performance-based interviewing? That was probably 40 years ago, so it's just I just said I've been training that. So my background is very unusual for a 
uh, recruiter doing what I do. I, I'm an engineer. I was running a manufacturing company when I decided to become a recruiter. Literally, I was working 80 hours a week. I was working, I had a couple, I had a pretty nice career track, but I was really working 80 hours a week. And I started using these recruiters. And I realized they had a better life than I did. And I literally, I didn't like my boss. I mean, that was the only reason. I loved what I was doing. I was on a good career path with a great company. Could just see it, but I just didn't like my boss. And that, that level of frustration, I just literally quit four times in one year, and then I just screwed, I'm out of here. And, and an idiot, like an idiot, I became a recruiter. And that was my wife supported that idea. Still married to her today, so I know that was important. But once I got to become a recruiter, and I remember the first job I had was a plant manager making automotive parts. I never used the job description, I just, but I knew the job. I mean, I've done stuff like that, or I knew it, so I just, hey, talk to the company president, let's go out in your plant and walk through it. Within 20 minutes, I knew the job was. Had to realign the lines, he had to kind of rebalance material control. The systems supporting all manufacturing were pretty, it was just the beginning of ERP and MRP in those times, but I said, we got to get the systems straightened out. But the idea of using a job description made no sense. We just looked at, talk about, what does a person need to do to be successful? So, and that's the communication I have with the candidate. So it was not this epiphany, it was what I always did. But then as I started dealing with more HR and bigger companies, I said, why are you doing it backwards? I don't need the job description. Tell me what, so that was, so it was me always doing it that way, thinking about it that way. And I think then the internet really kind of changed things because they had, oh, we have to write job descriptions. Well, you didn't really have to write job descriptions that way until the internet came out. And then the internet published all these things. So just, so I think that's where, Things even got worse was in the early 90s when the Internet and job boards came out and they used it. And, and now everyone's uh, so inculcated with these job descriptions that you almost can't break the habit. And to me, that was a fundamental mistake when the Internet came out. And now you have to fight uh, the Internet systems. An applicant tracking systems came along to manage these job postings. And then the government came in and said, how do you define a candidate for government reporting? So I think it just kind of built upon this problem and I, and I think it actually created some other problems about turnover and uh, easier to find jobs and all that kind of thing. But so I'd say the anti-epiphany uh, probably came out as it just made it more difficult when job boards came out and when the applicant tracking systems started being used to uh, mix and match candidates. Thanks for listening in on the conversation. In addition to Lou Adler sharing his expertise on recruiting, you can find other experts that have shared their wisdom with us here on BizTalk. Those are available as podcasts on our website and cover business topics in the areas of recruiting, leadership, marketing, performance management, sales and sales management, and, of course, personal development. You can download these podcasts from our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. Lou, you mentioned that performance matrix, in other words, the results you're expecting to be produced out of this job, is one of the components to your performance-based hiring system. It sounds like it's foundational. And at the same time, what are the other components that make up your performance-based hiring model? Well, there's a couple of things. The one, and so it's really four parts. Number one, and this is what we did after a couple of years, we could really see, we benchmark why did good people take jobs, the criteria they used to accept them, if the interviewing was accurate, predicted their on-the-job performance. And uh, we just started studying why the best people took jobs and realized those four components. Component one, as we just talked about, you got to define the work. Nobody great is going to uh, take a job unless it's a great career move. It also turns out that Google's Project Oxygen and Gallup's Q12 reinforce that. I, I mean, it's not 
to my mind, it was common sense, but when you start doing really academic research and validated that clarifying expectations is a driver of success, it was very clear you had to do that in the hiring process. However, the second part is you had to find these people. And the thing I learned back in the early 80s is that the best people didn't look for work the way average people look for work. And that's the same true in the 90s, the same true in 2000, the same true today. Now, how they find jobs is fundamentally different, but the issue is the best people still do it differently. And a lot of it has to do with networking and referrals. Uh, now, in the olden days, you just had a phone. Uh, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot slower. Today, you can do it a lot more quickly with internet and LinkedIn and all the other kinds of tools. But nonetheless, good people don't look for work the way the average people look for. That was the second part. Let's let's build sourcing programs around how good people look for work, which is very creative messaging, compelling, getting them there, let them, and engaging them in a conversation, a consultative approach, not a transactional approach. The third part was I, as a recruiter, had to be a good interviewer. I saw so many of my clients, candidates who I knew personally or had worked with, that I uh, hear this reaction when they met these people in an interview that it wasn't, they were totally false in the way they assessed these people. So I knew there was fundamental problems with interviewing. So I really spent five years researching every aspect of interviewing. And I started in, sitting in on interviews. And I realized there was a dozen or so managers who just aced They always got it right. And they did something different than every other manager. They focused on performance. Hey, I need to get this product built in six months. Where have you ever built a product like that? I've got to design this circuit to do this. Where have you ever designed a circuit like that? I've got to open up the Northeast Territory. This is our most critical area. It's a virgin territory. Where have you ever done that? So this pattern of I started listening to how good managers interviewed, whether it's engineering, accounting, marketing, sales, they all had this philosophy of focusing on telling the candidate what needs to be done and finding accomplishments that were like that. And all of a sudden I started doing that and I thought, oh, this actually works. So that became what I call our performance-based interview. There's a little more to it than that, but bottom line, it's looking at a pattern of past performance uh, compared to what the performance required in the job was. And then also understanding how a candidate thinks, getting into their problems. Hey, Jim, we've got to get this problem solved. I've got this manufacturing tool that's just not performing up to speed. If you were to get this job, how would you do it? Hey, we got to get this, we got this tough customer that's just not interested in us. How would you penetrate this tough customer? So it's asking real job-related problem solvings and engaging with the person, see how they'd solve the problem, not necessarily the answer to the problem. So that got out our left and right brains. So and that was the, the three first steps. The final step was you had to close the deal. You never had enough money in the budget. Never enough. But if the candidate saw this as a career move, not a compensation move, everything changed. Hey, you got to focus on the long-term and the mid-term and the work you're going to be doing. And if you could see that puts you in a better career path, the compensation will take care of itself. So that's the whole process. Understanding the job, understanding how people look for jobs, understanding how to assess competency and how to close uh, based on careers, not compensation, was the whole performance-based hiring package. Lou, I would agree. In our experience of assessing over half a million salespeople, we have found that the 6% of that group can sell almost anything, 24% has some assembly that needs to be required. 35% are really account managers and not salespeople, and 35% should not be in sales. So when you look at that, those statistics, what I've learned about talking to those top 6 percenters is they know their next career move. In fact, rarely do they have updated resumes. They're definitely not out on job boards. And if and when they come into the market and they need to switch jobs or want to switch jobs, they know where they're going to go because people are aware of them and their performance or they're aware of the company they want to work for. So given that, uh, how do we go out and find 
these six percenters, the, the top performers, because they appear to be off the grid. Well, I think, in fact, I just had a training class this morning talking about uh, the best methodology of finding candidates. In my mind, and it would, I think you'd raise the sales, but I do more than sales. We do engineering, do manufacturing, do accounting, the whole bit, customer service, mm. doesn't matter what industry. Uh, so it would be the idea, though, as a recruiter, what's gold to a recruiter, which I still am a recruiter, is a pre-qualified warm referral. LinkedIn is a great platform for getting those. So if I'm talking with someone, particularly my employees, my employees are connected with great people. So I just want them to tell me, hey, who are the best people? Don't tell me who's looking. I just want to who are the best people you know in logistics, the best person you know in buying and purchasing, the best engineer you know, the best software developer you know, the best marketing for product launch. I just want to know those people, and I want to nurture those people. But I know that if I call them up and ask them, hey, would you open Explorer Career Move, and I make it a consultative approach, they'll return my call. I already know they're pre-qualified because somebody's told me they're a good person, so I don't call people who don't call me back. I don't call people who aren't good to call me back. So I, I know that a great warm, just like a sales rep, a great warm lead is money in the bank. So I'll spend more time trying to get these great warm leads networking. Uh, LinkedIn is a great platform for pulling that off. So I just, and companies, in my mind, don't elevate it to the art of, hey, get your employees to connect with every great person they've ever worked with. If they did that way, and I look at LinkedIn as a network of people, it's just, to me, that's what I call hidden gold. On the other hand, I can also write very compelling ads. You look at my advertising, and I write a few. Um, they're compelling. I remember one I did a couple years ago for a controller for a small entertainment company in L.A. What's that Oscar-winning controller? I mean, one was attention-getting mechanism, but my emphasis was on when you look at the posting, it didn't even have skills listed. I might have said, but I start off with what the employee value proposition was. What's in it for the candidate? Why you'd want to be interested? Then I highlighted three or four key issues the person, objectives the person was going to have. That became, hey, we, we need someone to pull us to do this, A, B, C, and D. And if you pull that off, uh, all the people you were working with will be thanking you the day they receive their Oscars and Emmys. And I said, for, C, for a CPA, this is the stuff of dreams, getting out of the numbers and making a difference. Well, I put my mindset is what would a top person who's working in a company uh, who's a CPA, and I needed that, but I didn't say must have CPA, must have this, must have that. I made it a story that related to that person sitting who's not looking, and I, and I got a lot of referrals off that. But all my advertising is putting my mind in how would a top person think and act, and how would I have to write a story for that person? That's our customer. You can write a story for an average person, and you might find a a per, you'll find an average person. You write a story for a great person, you'll find a great person. So it's understanding how, and even that uh, Oscar-winning controller, I had people in companies send that to all the people they knew, and they were getting excited. All the employees were excited. Oh, I'll send this out. This is great. As opposed to must have four years experience, must be a CPA, must have entertainment, must have this, must have all that stuff. So you got to understand it's marketing, too, and it's got to appeal to your customer. The customer is a top performer who doesn't have to leave or has got multiple opportunities. But how are you going to get... Uh, your job noticed, and again, I'm excited. Lou, what's the biggest misperception you see about hiring people today? I would say it's the idea, okay, the big one is strategic. I think, and it goes back to what I call the having, or the, the having, getting, doing bucket, if you lay that out horizontally, I believe that most people have the perception that there's a surplus of good talent out there. If there's a surplus of good talent, then all you have to do is weed out the weak ones, and a few good ones will remain. If you have a scarcity of talent, which in my mind is really the issue, if you have a scarcity of talent, that surplus model is totally flawed. 
And I think these people have the surplus model that our ATS is built around that, our information systems are built around that, job descriptions are built around that, HR, HR thinks that way. But if you're a scarcity approach, you've got to go backwards. So the misconception is there's not a surplus of good talent, there's a scarcity. And when there's a scarcity of talent, you can't use a surplus uh, process or surplus model to pull it together. And to me, that's the big disconnect here. And when people see that, they say, oh, my God, of course. But it's not an easy sell to make, consistent uh, the conventional wisdom, our systems, our processes are built around the surplus mentality of mixing and maxing people's skills and experiences on a job description. You're listening to BizTalk, and our guest is Lou Adler. Thanks for joining in on the conversation. We're talking to Lou about his new book, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. So, Lou, you talked about the scarcity of top talent, and I'm just kind of curious. Is that a recent phenomenon, or has it been going on for some time? Well, I think, now this now I'm going into history. My sense is, is in the Depression, which is the one in 1929 to 1939, uh, there was a surplus of talent. So a lot of our labor laws, a lot of our myths or processes were built around that. Hey, we got a lot of great people. I think in the Internet world, it was exaggerated by job boards to say, hey, let's here's how we should post job job descriptions. Uh, companies go in and say, hey, and, and legally you do have to post a job description. I actually had the number one lawyer in a country from Mendelssohn validate what I just described, and he validates. He said it's more predictive and it's perfectly objective criteria. Uh, building a product in six months is objective as having three years' experience. So it's what I'm saying here is, and I know some of your listeners are going to say, oh, if you can't do this, it's not in compliance. It is in compliance. I talked to the number one litigator in a country from the number one law firm in a country. Uh, but that's a battle. You have to go through that. People just say, oh, I can't do it. And it's easy. Then the ATS says, we'll take your job descriptions. We'll post them on a job board. That became a huge win. Oh, I don't have to write these. I don't have to be creative. I can just put this generic boilerplate up. Um, so I think the idea is that we have these misguided assumptions here that prevent us from doing things. Lou, you're with the hiring manager today. The one piece of advice that you're giving them is what? Oh, I think, and I think this is where it is. If I ask a manager, so they said, well, I'm looking for someone who's got five years of this, four years of this, six years of that, and a degree from here and a degree from that. And then I say this to that person. I said, what you've just described is not a job. What you've just described is a person description. You've defined a person. Skills are not a job. It's a person. Experience is not a job. It's a person. Academics is not a job. It's a person. Let's put the job, the person description in the parking lot, and let's really define the job. What does a great person need to do to be successful? You've got six engineers. What does the top one or two do differently than the other six? Because I'm going to contend that if you go along with a job description, you'll just hire people just like you've already hired. And your company, if you just use job descriptions, your company is just going to hire people exactly like you've already hired. But if you want to raise the level of people you hire, define what people need to do to be successful and define what the top quartile does differently than the average person. Let's find those people. And I guarantee if they can do the work they have, all the skills needed, but they'll be absolutely different than what you have, in a different mix than what you have in a job description. So what I tell the hiring managers is, if you want to hire better people, throw away job descriptions and define the work you need to be done. I call them performance-based job descriptions or performance profiles. You do that, the world will change uh, starting tomorrow. Good advice, Lou. I would agree with you. You know, Having that description of why does the role exist and what results is that role supposed to produce is critical in identifying that, and then you can go find the person that can execute on those results you want. Okay, so 
Let's pretend you're with the CEO of a company now. So the one piece of advice you're given a CEO is what? Yeah, I've been with CEOs many times. Right. And a lot of them sign uh, our training to implement performance-based hiring or performance-based selection in their company. And I remember with a chairman with a big company in the Midwest, he and I, I had a bunch of our trainers there and their training, and he was going to meet the whole, every single manager from around the world who was there from all their divisions, and they were being trained. And I remember the, the chairman, I said, here's what, you're going to say some final thing this afternoon. What I would do is after they've been through this training is ask them, do they like performance-based hiring? Do they think it's going to work? And if, they'll, they'll, if they say no, then don't follow the next part, but they'll likely say yes, and they did. I said, say this, from this moment forward, to open up a job requisition, a list of skills and experience is not sufficient. You need to start with what the person needs to do to be considered successful. If you just make that change as part of opening up your rec, focusing on what people need to do, create a performance-based job description, a little looser and lighter on the skills, you will have fundamentally changed the way your hiring is done at your company. Everything else is going to, as you said earlier, Jim, it's foundational. When companies do that, all of a sudden, managers are – and that's number one. Number two, you reward managers and you put a part of their performance review that your management team is going to be assessed. Number one performance objective for management team is hiring good people. Make that not – make that obvious, not it's understood. No. Uh, it has to be part of you. Say that I told Hilly guys, if you do those two things, the world will change. And it will change. Our guest is Lou Adler. We're talking about his book, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. So, Lou, one half of the book, we're talking about the hiring managers and companies and how to do it, but the other half is candidates. So the one piece of advice you would give a person who's looking for a job would be what? Yeah, and actually the book that I wrote, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired, was a hard book to write. I mean, because I, I talk with hiring managers and um, recruiters and HR leaders all the time. But I, what I wanted to do in the book is also give advice to candidates in every single chapter. And the big advice I can give to candidates is, is that more than likely they're not going to be judged properly on who they are as, and what they do, particularly because they're going to be mixed and matched on their skills. So the first thing I say to do is, hey, if, you don't, if you're not a perfect match for a job description that's posted online, do not apply. It will not work. You get hundreds and hundreds of job descriptions, and all systems are matched based on what you have on your, on your skills you've got listed there. And if you don't have them there, you're not going to get – uh, you're not even put on the, the top of the list. So it, most candidates don't know what it looks like, but you get a list of 100 names. They're, they're ranked, ordered. The top of the list are the ones who have the big, the closest match. Recruiters <clears throat> spend five or ten or 15 seconds looking at each profile. Literally, should I see this person? See this person? It's, I mean, I've watched them, and I do the same thing. So they make this instant judgment if they should even talk to the person. So if you're not in the first 25 out of 500, you're not even going to get looked at. So mm-hmm. I say use the back door to get in. Find somebody at the company. Use LinkedIn. Find a manager. Do something different. Send in a sample of your work. Get somebody. Uh, so that's number one is try to use the back door. Try to get a referral. Find someone in your network who can get you in there or find someone who's networked to somebody in your network. And that takes a lot of work, but that's what you have to do to get in. When you do get the interview, if you see – and this is me talking to candidates. When you do get an interview and you instantly recognize the, the interviewer is box-checking your skills, take control. And ask, rather than, because if you don't have the skills, you're going to get blown away. So what's the point? Take, be bold and ask a question like this. Is, you know, I looked at your job description online. I see that your company is doing something like this and kind of give a little bit of background. 
what does this person need to do to be successful in this job? Because I'd like to give you some examples of work I've done that are most related. It's basically asking the hiring manager what the recruiter should say. What does it take to be successful in this job? Then you have to give a story of something you've accomplished that's most comparable. You got again. It's now it's a little bit harder for candidates uh, to get off this having emphasis. So to get the interview, you have to go through the back door somehow. Either get a referral or connect with someone differently. But once you get the interview, you also have to make sure you're not uh, boxed. Your skills aren't box checked. Your performance is evaluated. So the way to do that again is. What, is it, what does a person need to do to be successful in this job? I'd like to give you a few examples of work that I've done that's most related. That's how I would suggest, and that's the advice I give to candidates. Lou, what advice do you give people if they're contacted by a recruiter? Well, I think if they're contacted by a recruiter, don't be too hungry. The harder you are to get hired, the more valuable you are. So play a little bit hard to get. I mean, some people say what I call this day is a little like dating, but I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say it's about recruiting. Uh, so okay. by asking, I mean, I would say a candidate is judged, rightly or wrongly, by their first impression, which is wrong. It has no value. In fact, it's counterproductive. They're judged by their skills, the list of skills and experiences, which is wrong, again, because a lot of people can do it. But they're also judged by the quality of their questions. So if the first contact, if you're not a perfect match on skills, or even if you are, uh, ask good questions. Questions might be, what are some things this person is really going to be focusing on? How much visibility is there in the job? Why is the job open? Don't ask self-serving questions. Understand what this job is and the impact it can make with the idea is those are questions that a good discriminating candidate would ask. If you ask, what are the benefits, what's the location, all the stuff, what I call this day one stuff, you're filtering on negotiable items. You want to get this interview. And if you ask good fundamental questions, uh, now all of a sudden, and if you know the interview is coming up, start doing some research about the company. The idea is if you get in the interview with a recruiter, you might not be qualified for that job, but that recruiter is working 15 other assignments. And there's six other recruiters in the company who right next to that person who got working on 15 other assignments. So if you get an opportunity to get introduced to the company and they like you, you'll all of a sudden uh, be screened for other opportunities. But if you start filtering on the location, the company, and all this stuff, you're making the same mistake that companies are making. Don't focus on having or doing, uh, having and getting. Focus on what you're going to be doing. And I think the quality of your questions you ask are as critical. And I've had so many hiring managers debrief with me and say, oh, I really like that person. They have great questions. And they were business questions. They were strategy questions. They were insight questions. What kind of technology are you using to design that new circuit board? All of a sudden, if you know those things, and all of a sudden you're, ooh, the recruiter probably doesn't know it. But if you know it, as a candidate, all of a sudden the recruiter says, well, that's that's pretty sharp, pretty savvy. So I think understanding the quality of your questions and making them business-oriented and focused on the real job needs, but the idea is i got to get in there and interview. But don't be too hungry to do it. Be a little bit discriminating. You do that, you're in the game. Our guest is Lou Adler. We're talking about his book, The Essential Guide for Hiring and Getting Hired. If you're looking for more resources on how to hire top-performing people, go to our website, biztalkradioshow.com. That's B-I-Z, talkradioshow.com. Lou, there's been some discussion about the aging of the labor force in America today, in particular as it relates to baby boomers, because, you know, they're getting older and X percent are retiring every day now. So what are some insights you have as it relates to the impact to an employer, given the fact there's an aging labor force? Yeah. Well, let's say this. 
I mean, there had been a lot of research, and I do a lot of economic research about the demographics that there were going to be because the baby boomers are retiring, there's right. going to be a lot of open jobs available. I don't see that. Uh, maybe because the baby boomers are working longer, the economy hasn't been strong in the last five years. Uh, it's been a pretty tough one, all of a sudden done. It's the last 10, 12 years have been a pretty tough ride. I mean, it's kind of had a pretty cyclical and roller coaster kind of economics in terms of job hunting. So I think the traditional wisdom with respect to economics and baby boomers leaving is probably not going to be true. Let me kind of flip the question around a little bit to say, though, that I think two big big themes, either at the economic level, is I think there are a lot of companies are, because companies have not offered many jobs, uh, there haven't been a lot of growth at the manager level who eventually would become mid-managers who eventually become directors or who tend to become vice presidents and presidents. So I think there is, at some level, the traditional approach of being, hey, I use a seasoned manager who can become a director, director to become a manager or vice president. There could be some missing issues there. Uh, and this is because people turn over a lot. So when you turn over a lot, there's 25% of the workforce is just taking all these entry-level jobs. So a lot of people aren't growing uh, their leadership and their management skills, and I think that's a concern. Uh, from a baby boomer, if I just looked at the baby boomers themselves, and there's a question I get constantly, which is a totally different kind of question, is how do you know if you're overqualified? And I think, and this is where I, people disagree with me on this, but they're wrong. Uh, people said, oh, I'm qualified to do that job. I've done that job. The person's a, a director, and they want to do a senior engineering job or a senior staff job. Well, if they're not motivated to do that job, they're, they're overqualified. They might have to be competent to do it, but my mind, success doing it is being competent and motivated to do it. And if someone can't prove to me they're motivated to do it and have done it recently, in my mind, they're overqualified. Now, on the flip side, if you're a baby boomer looking for a job and you're a little bit uh, uh, more seasoned, more mature worker, but you can demonstrate that you enjoy that work and you're motivated, I think you deserve that job. If you can deserve, if you can meet the performance objectives of the job and are motivated to do it, I don't care if you're black or white, green or yellow, I don't care what religion you are, I don't care how old you are, how physically challenged you are. You can you can do that work and prove that you're competent and motivated to do it, you should get it. Lou, you make a point that some of the technology that's available today and the mentality about an abundance of talent being out there, that uh, a lot of the processes and systems are set up to go in that direction. There's a lot of momentum built around doing it that way. If you're leading a company, how do you get the attention of people to stop and say, no, maybe what Lou has to say here has some validity, and we should be looking at this differently. Well, in fact, I'm just looking at my email coming through as you do it. I have a couple of proposals out right now. We have what's called a proof of concept. So rather than go in with a company and say, do it this way, I say, let's just we'll do it. Let's do it this way for half a dozen assignments. Let's do it, and we got a bunch of recruiters. We're working with LinkedIn on this project. A bunch of recruiters will use performance-based hiring, uh, do it in the way I just suggested, and a bunch of recruiters will do it the traditional way. We'll just compare their performance in terms of quality people seen, hiring manager engagement, uh, productivity. So our idea is let's just take a small – again, I go back to 40 years. I was an engineer. I really was an engineer. I actually worked on nuclear missiles. My background is still, and I think that way. It's a business process. It's an engineering process. Let's just – the way you do is you test stuff, and we'll see which way it works. And we've done that all the years, but all of a sudden we're starting to get a lot of momentum, and companies, big companies are really saying, hey, maybe we are right. Because there's this frustration is that – they try these piecemeal approaches, try better interviewing. Well, they've had behavioral interviewing for years, and companies aren't hiring better people. They're making fewer <laughs> mistakes. They're not hiring better people. Our whole thing is it's a whole system. 
You can't just do silos to do it. You can't just use behavioral interview. You can't just have this new sourcing tool. You can't have this new matching tool. Think about it at a higher level. The objective is hiring better people. These things are silos. And I think in HR, people don't think system-wise. Uh, it's the only function that doesn't think in a logical, systematic fashion. So, uh, But I think this proof of concept is how we've gotten a lot of companies to start reconsidering, hey, maybe there is a way, and we start to prove it out. And In every case, we've won. So, I mean, it's not... Uh, as long as the company decides to change their methodologies, now they clearly see that the methodology is appropriate, but there's a lot of history you got to break through to pull it off. So it tends to be uh, in certain we, we tend to have great success in certain critical areas where companies really is oh yes we need to do it here and this does work. So it's the proof of concept though is the, the ideal way of implementing at least testing it. Lou, is there one question today I should have asked you that I haven't? Oh, there's probably 17, but. Uh, I think the one that I would say is most important, if I just had to summarize in my own mind, is are you in a surplus mentality? Do you, is there really a surplus of candidates for the positions you're trying to fill? If there is, then a having, getting, doing, becoming methodology will work. I think it's demeaning, but it will work. If you're in a scarcity situation or if you want to hire great talent, it will foundationally it is invalid. You will just work way too hard and get the wrong results. Emphasize, what, focus on the candidate as much as the job. What's in it for a great person? How do they think? Uh, let's build our messaging and our marketing around how great people make decisions, not how our ATS system or IT system forces us to make decisions. So that would be the way I would look at it. Lou, thanks for being on the program. Hey, Jim, it was a pleasure. Anytime. Look forward to talking again sometime in the future. This or other BizTalk podcast may be downloaded by visiting our website, biztalkradioshow.com, where you can subscribe to BizTalk through iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BizTalk1040 and like us on Facebook. If you want to learn the strategies finding and getting performance out of A-player salespeople, contact Performance Group by calling 800-950-9509 or visit us on the web at pmgllc.net. This has been your host, Jim Lovato.